Expecting good things today? Amen. Are you expecting anything today? Good or bad. All right. You pretty much get what you expect. So here we go. We're looking at one minute after you die. And we said last week there's been this rash of high-profile deaths that's been made, made much of in the media. And, you know, isn't it amazing? Now we've moved on. See, we've already, this is only a week, you know, and we've moved on to other things. But those who died, well, they haven't moved on. We saw last week that they are where they are. Wherever that may be, whether that's heaven or hell, they are there. And we have a tendency to glorify those who die, especially our loved ones. We said it seems like uh, in prison, there's you never can find someone who's guilty in prison, and you never seem can find anyone in a funeral that's going to hell. But is that reality? And I still want to read again the C.S. Lewis quote at the top of your notes. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin and in the end, despair. And we just don't want to be wrong on this. We just do not want to be wrong on this. And so turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. We're looking at this parable, and you would think there's a lot of places to look at to get some of this information in Scripture, but this is a unique thing. So let's begin and look at just a couple of observations about this parable, Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. And the thing that stands out about this parable is this. It's the one place in Scripture. It is the one place in Scripture where we have a personal testimony of someone who has been to hell. I had someone email me the other day as a result of uh, sharing parts of this uh, study from last week. And they asked me about, had you read a book about someone who had, it was kind of like someone who had had a a near-death experience and went to heaven, but this person had had a personal experience of hell, and I forget what the name of the the book was. But, you know, I thought in my mind that's interesting, and I'm sure that it was interesting to read, but it was one person's experience. This is the only place in Scripture where God's inspired, inerrant word has a personal testimony of someone who's been to hell. So this is the one thing you can trust when you read, the second thing is it focuses on two periods of life every person will experience. Every person is going to experience the two phases or the two periods of life that are described. For instance, in verses 19 through 21, we have life before death. That's what we all experience right now. The pivot is verse 22, then comes death. And then in verses 23 through 31, we have life after death. So there's two phases of life, life before death, life after death. And we tend to focus on which one? Life before death. And then we make a big emotional thing about death. And then we kind of leave off life after death. And yet, death is merely a doorway, a transition, an instant in time where you pass from life before death to life after death. Now, we often in the past would put on headstones and tombstones, epitaphs, 
which basically describe life before death. And I found these. I thought they were interesting. Uh, some funny uh, grave epitaphs. These are from real headstones, okay? So this is how they used to... I, I guess, you know, they didn't have TV back then. They didn't have Internet back then. And so uh, it was an exciting time when someone died. Here lies Ezekiel Akel, age 102. The good die young. <laughs> See, that's a good one. Here lie, And these, these are real. I'm not making these up. These are real people's names. Here lies Johnny Yeast. Pardon me for not rising. Okay, that was, that was a good one. Where's Jim Lay? Where's Jim? Where's Jim? Jim? Okay, there he, he's laughing. I can't look at Sean. I have to look at you on these. Uh, here lies the body of Jonathan Blake, stepped on the gas instead of the brake. <laughs> Smiles big, Sean just moans more. Uh, here, okay, here, this is a good one. You know, headstones can be used for many purposes. A lot of people read them. Sacred to the memory of my husband, John Barnes, who died January 3rd, 1803, his comely young widow, age 23, has many qualifications of a good wife and yearns to be comforted. <laughs> that's on the headstone, Todd. Can you imagine? That, that's pretty good. Here lies Lester Moore, four slugs from a 44, no less, no more. Oh, that's a good one. You guys did. Another one just simply said, I told you I was sick, <laughs> which I thought was good. Now, this is interesting. Again, these are like advertisements. Who... Uh, the nameless person who was fatally burned March 21st, 1870 by the explosion of a lamp filled with R.E. Danforth's non-explosing burning fluid. <laughs> a little, you know, legal suit there going on right on the... T- I thought that was just funny. I was like, what? Oh, okay, I got it. Uh, born 1903, died 1942, looked up the elevator shaft to see if the car was on its way down. It was. The children of Israel wanted bread, and the Lord sent manna. Old clerk Wallace wanted a wife, and the devil sent him Anna. (laughs) This is on the gravestone. That's just funny stuff. Tim McGrew, Topeka, Kansas. Here lies Sheriff Tim McGrew, who said he would arrest Bill Hesse or die. He was right. Uh, Edgar Oscar Earl of England. Beneath this grassy mound now rests one Edgar Oscar Earl, who to another hunter looked exactly like a squirrel. That was kind of bad. A man by the name of Owen Moore in Boston, Massachusetts, has on his headstone, Owen Moore, gone away, Owen Moore, than he could pay. I'm telling you, they didn't have anything else to do. John Timothy Snow, Tombstone, Arizona. Here lies John Timothy Snow, who died fighting for a lady's honor. She wanted to keep it. <laughs> yeah, think on that one. Think on that one. And then here's one from Wolverhampton, England. Our own missionaries. Some of you have been to Wolverhampton, uh, England, where the Gritzes are at. Joseph Jones. Here lies the bones of Joseph Jones, who ate whilst he was able. But once o'er fed, he dropped down dead and fell beneath the table. When from the tomb to meet his doom, he rise amidst sinners. Since he must dwell in heaven or hell, take him, which gives the best dinners. Now, that's interesting. Heaven or hell, but you get to choose. I want to go to the place for the best dinners. Well, that's just not the reality, is it? Life after death is determined in our present life. The interesting thing about this parable is that it answers three questions 
that people have about hell. It answers three basic questions. The first question we answered last week, and it was this. What happens one minute after people die and go to hell? And we learned there was five definite things in this parable. The first is they were forever separated. Forever separated. Wherever you are, you're separated. Forever suffering. Forever suffering. Ultimately, in the lake of fire. Listen to one pastor's description of what that suffering in the lake of fire was, it will be like. What would a lake of fire be like? It's a lake so large that you cannot see the other side. A lake filled with fire and burning smoke. A lake so hot that no one can come near without burning up. The roar of the fire never stops. The smoke ascends forever. Into that lake, the unsaved dead are tossed one by one, screaming, pleading, begging for mercy. But it's too late. Too late for repentance. Too late for remorse. Too late to give your heart to Jesus. That day is long past. If you were there on that day, you will be thrown head first into the lake. The heat will be unbearable. First scorching your skin, then turning it black, then baking your organs, stifling your voice, enveloping your head, destroying your vision. You open your mouth, but no words come out. You inhale the choking smoke and pray to die, but you can't. As the flames blacken your body, you feel such pain that no words could ever describe it. Worse and worse it becomes until you reach the moment of death, but you do not die. Frantically, you swim to the shore, but there is no shore. Only wave upon wave of hot sulfur washing over your charred body. You cannot sink. You cannot reach sore. You cannot see anyone around you. You are lost eternally, hopelessly, terribly, consciously lost. You curse God, but it does no good. You raise a bloody blackened fist, and the sulfur washes over it, producing a soundless scream of agony. Oh, Jesus, you pray, but no one answers. How did this happen? How could have ended this way? On and on you swim, burning but not consumed, tortured with no relief, hoping for rescue but none comes to your aid. This is the second death. It's the final destination of those who do not know Jesus Christ. If someone objects to my depiction, I assure you that I mean no harm or offense to anyone, but I believe the lake of fire is real. I am sure that the reality is far worse than my words. You know, occasionally someone will ask, is this suffering that we talked about last week, is it real or is it symbolic? And you know the answer is, yes, it is real. It's real in the sense that there is something that corresponds to fire, darkness, and brimstone in hell. And yes, it's symbolic in that it's non-consuming fire that burns in total darkness. When you put all this together... You can't make sense of this because you're describing something that's beyond your understanding. It's what only God can reveal. Listen to Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great London pastor of the 19th century. There is real fire in hell, as truly as you have a real body. A fire exactly like that which you have on this earth, except this. It will not consume you, though it will torture you. You have seen asbestos lying amid red-hot coals, but not consumed. So your body will be prepared by God in such a way that it will burn forever without being consumed. 
with your nerves laid raw by searing flame, yet never desensitized for all its raging fury. And the acrid smoke of the sulfurous fumes searing your lungs and choking your breath, you will cry out for the mercy of death, but it shall never, never, no, never will it come. R.C. Sproul, radio Bible teacher, says that the images of fire and brimstone are symbolic in the sense that they point to something else. However, in this case, the reality must be greater than the symbol, not less. He suggests that whatever hell is, it's so terrible that the people there would pray for literal fire and brimstone. I think that puts it into perspective. Do you get what I'm trying to say? It's real. But if you're going to take these words literally and force it upon it, well, it's worse than that. It's, it's more real than that. It's more intense than that. Forever suffering. And then we saw that worse than that, forever settled. It's never going to change. There's no second chance. There's no way out. Forever reaping what was sown and forever the same. Listen, hearts don't change when they die. Hearts don't change when they die. Your destiny in in eternity is determined in history. Today, the choices we make determine tomorrow. And they don't change the moment we die. Hard hearts don't suddenly become soft. Rebellious hearts don't suddenly become submissive. Selfish hearts don't suddenly become unselfish. Sinful hearts don't suddenly become righteous any more than when a born-again person dies, does their heart suddenly become righteous. You see, when we die, if your heart's redeemed and regenerated and converted and has been replaced with a living, a stony heart replaced. Guess what kind of heart you have the moment you die? A redeemed, regenerated, converted heart. Do you get what I'm saying? But if you have a hard heart, a rebellious heart, a sinful heart, and that's what the heart you have when you die, forever the same. Forever the same. Death does not change. Our bodies will be changed, but they'll be changed because our hearts have already been changed. So that's the first question. What happens one minute after people die and go to hell? But there's a second question, and this is we're going to deal with today. What kind of people go to hell? Who really goes to hell? And then next week we'll look at how can I go to heaven and not go to hell? So these are the three questions that are addressed. But let's look at that second question. What kind of people go to hell? How would you answer that question? Let's say you had to come up here and give your answer. You won't. Don't panic. But you ought to be able to give an answer to that question. What kind of people go to hell? And I don't mean what must a person do to be saved. Most of you know that answer. I want you to think, what are the kind of people? What do they look like, people who go to hell? What do they act like right now as they are alive? What kind of people? What do they act like? This this scripture answers that question. Now, Americans, listen, Americans believe in hell. They just don't believe they're going there. A 1991 survey commissioned by the U.S. News and World Report showed that 78% of Americans believe in heaven and 60% believe in hell. It's always going to be that way. In the survey, 81% of women surveyed thought they had an excellent chance of going to heaven and only 3% thought they had a similar chance of going to hell. So the majority of women are going to heaven, or think they're going to heaven, okay? 73% of guys surveyed said they expected. (laughs) These are just interesting. While 5% 
versus the 3% thought they'd be in hell. So what does this all mean? Well, it means one thing, that in heaven, as on earth, there'll be more women than there are men. Or so they think. But what really do these percents tell us? You know what they tell us? That we think there's a hell. We just don't think we're going there. Or anybody that we love is going there. John MacArthur was on one of these uh, news, you know, like CNN, Larry King, one of those shows. And he was there with a Jewish rabbi who had said this. There is a hell, but God would never send anybody there. Now, I like that because he's honest. He's saying what most of us and how most of us and how the majority of Americans live. There is a hell, 78% say, but what's my chance of going there? Slim to none. There is a hell, but God's not going to send anyone there. Well, during the commercial break, MacArthur or one of the other guys asked this Jewish rabbi, because this is very interesting. There's a hell, but no one's going to be sent there. Well, what about Hitler? What about Hitler? Would he go there? Well, yeah, he might go there. Might? Then you can ask, well, what about Stalin? Stalin killed more Jews than Hitler killed. Is he going to be there? Well, yeah, and you can go on and on. Here's the point. It comes down to this. Yeah, if there's a hell then it's a hell for those kind of people who do heinous, horrendous, horrible sins like a Hitler and a Stalin, but it's not for the kind of person like me or like my loved one or like the people I care about. So what kind of people go to hell? Well, let's look at Luke chapter 16. Let's look at verses 19 through 31. Let's read it again. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with crumbs, which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes... To them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So what kind of people? Why was the rich man in hell? Number one, we're going to ask some questions and see if we can come up with the answer from this text. Why was the rich man in hell? Number one, was it because of his stock? Was it because of his stock? I don't mean his financial portfolio. I mean his race, his family, his nationality, his ethnicity, his citizenship. You ever heard the saying, that guy comes from good what? Good stock. Was it because this guy came from bad stock? 
You see, many Jews in that day believed that the kind of people in hell was due to being from the wrong stock. They were convinced that hell was a place of torment, not for people like them, but for what kind of people? Gentile people. Gentile people. See, the Jewish people were God's chosen people, the elect people, the people who had been chosen by God, redeemed by God, out of slavery, set apart by His covenants, by His law, and by His presence. They were the people of the book. They were the law keepers, a chosen people in a royal nation, the very descendants of Abraham. He was their father. They were his children. They were a shoe-in for heaven. To them, the question was whether you're going to go to heaven or not, you'd ask, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? And if you could say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you were a shoe-in. If you could not say that, you were doomed. You were destined for hell. But was the rich man a Gentile? Was he from the wrong stock? No. What do you see in verse 24, verse 27, verse 30? What does he, how does he address Abraham? Father Abraham. Father. And then he says again, Father Abraham. What is he? He's saying, look, I'm surprised to be here because you're my daddy. I've got your blood, your DNA, your genetics, your race, I'm from your stock. What am I doing here? What am I doing here? Also, look at verses 14 through 15. We often miss the context of parables. This was spoken to Pharisees. You know who the rich man is? He represents a Jewish Pharisee. Look at verses 14 and 15. And now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money also heard all the things that Jesus taught, and they mocked him. They derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. In John chapter 8, Jesus was speaking to some Jews who claimed Abraham as their father, and here's the conversation. Here's how it goes. In John 8, 33 through 41, they answered him, and they were in a debate with him. They were deriding him. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say we will be made free? He had said, uh, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And they're like, we're, we've never been in bondage. Well, that was nuts. They'd been in bondage in Egypt. They in bondage in Babylon, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and now under the Romans. They were in all sorts of bondage. But what were they saying? We've got Abraham as our father. I know that you are Abraham descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Now, you've got to hang on to that. They were killing the Messiah, and his word had no place in them. I speak what I have seen from my father, and I do what, and you do what you have seen from your father. And here's how they answered him. Abraham is our father. And he said to him, if you were Abraham's children, then you'd act like it. You would do the works of Abraham, but now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I have heard from God, Abraham did not do this. Why? When God spoke to Abraham, what did Abraham do? He believed and he acted on it. Sacrifice your son, your only son. Okay. Don't understand it. Don't want to do it, but I trust you. Did it and God delivered his son. That's how Abraham was. How were these guys acting? Jesus said, believe in me, and they said, we want to kill you. John the Baptist said this in Matthew 3, 7 through 9. But when many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism 
uh, were coming to be baptized by him, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, listen, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think or say to yourselves, listen, we have Abraham as our father. That's our, that's our trump card. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Folks, it's not about your stock. It's about your heart. And only God can change a heart of stone to a heart of faith and tenderness towards God. Salvation is something only God can do. And that's what he's trying to say. This man's not in hell because he's a Jew or a Gentile. People don't go to hell because of the country they're from, because of the race they are, because who their daddy is, who their mommy is. You can grow up in a preacher's home and split hell wide open. In fact, you can live in the buckle of the Bible belt and go to hell. Or you can live in the poorest nation on earth and have a cutthroat as a father and a prostitute as a mother and still go to heaven. It wasn't because of his stock. I remember going to England in 1998 with a team from our church. And as we went through passports, the custom uh, person said, why are you here? And I said, well, we're here to help our missionary. And he got a sneer and a snide look on his face and said, so you think we're not Christians here? And I felt sad for him. You're born in England, and that means I'm going to heaven. We don't need missionaries here. Recently, a, a missionary to England said, now they would just turn you away. They're turning a lot of people away who are coming for missionary work. It wasn't because of his stock. Well, if it wasn't because of his stock, then maybe, number two, was it because of his substance? He was a rich man. Was it because of his success or his status? I don't care what you use. It's, it's the idea this was a man of substance. How rich was this guy? Maybe that's what sent him. Because, you know, when you first read this parable, what do you get this impression? I mean, rich is bad, go to hell. Poor is good, go to heaven. I mean, when you read it on the surface, it comes that way. But how rich was this guy? Look at verse 19. It's one verse, but it's packed full of how rich this guy. It says, there was a certain rich man. Now, rich is rich, but how rich is rich? He was clothed in purple. This was only the finest, most expensive. This was the polo, the hill figure, the nautica, whatever, the even higher status. This was the designer clothing of that day. Lydia was a seller of purple, and she was a rich woman because rich people will pay for rich clothing. He was clothed in fine linen. His underwear was the best. He probably ironed it. He fared sumptuously. Some translations say feasted sumptuously. Some say joyous living in splendor. NIV says living in luxury. The message paraphrases that he wasted his days in conspicuous consumption. In other words, mm, more, more, more. There is no limit. Bring it on. Bring it on. The best, the best. And then notice he did this every day. Now, uh, we would like save up. You know, we would save up to buy a nice clothes. We would save up to live this way for a few days on a vacation if we're lucky. This guy did it every day. This is how he lived. He was, he was rich. But doesn't the Bible say a lot about rich and poor people? You know, if you just read through the Bible, you would tend to think rich is good, poor is bad. Listen to some of these things. But you've got to listen to the verses. Matthew eleven five. The gospel is preached especially to poor. 11.5, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor get the gospel preached to them. In James 2.5, God especially chooses the poor 
to be his elect. Listen to James 2.5. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised? And then you can't bypass Matthew 19. What did Jesus say about rich people going to heaven? He said what? It is very hard for a rich man to go to heaven. In fact, he said, surely I say to you, that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How easy is that? It's not. You know what he was saying? It's impossible. Listen to what the disciples respond. When the disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished. Now stop right there. You know why they were astonished? Because here's what they thought. Rich is good. Rich goes to heaven. Poor is bad. Cursed of God goes to hell. They thought rich people were a shoe in. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So here's what they say. They were astonished saying, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible. You see, it's not your substance or your stock or anything else that we can do that will get us to heaven. It is impossible for any of us to get to heaven. But with God, praise God, all things are possible. So it wasn't the extent. Look, he had everything. Lazarus had nothing. Is that the way it is? Heaven's filled with rich people? Or hell's filled with rich people? Heaven's filled with poor people? Listen, Jesus made it clear that money can be a barrier to getting to heaven, but he never said possessing much of it sends you to hell. You know how we know this from this parable? Who was in heaven? Abraham. You know what Genesis 13.2 says about Abraham? Listen to this, Genesis 13.2. Now, Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. So here you got a dirt poor man in heaven and you got a filthy rich man in heaven and you got a filthy rich man in hell. It's not your substance. Money can be a problem. This is in your notes. Money can be a problem, but the problem is never possessing it. It's always money possessing what? Us. It's money possessing us. That's why I directed you to Luke uh, uh, 16 verse 14. Now the Pharisees who were what? Lovers of money. This man represents a lover. It wasn't that he was rich. It was that he loved his riches more than he loved God. And the proof that he didn't love God was how he treated Lazarus at his gate. See, we get all messed up when we think money is the root of all evil. But Paul didn't say money was the root of all evil. What did he say? The love of money is the root of all evil. So here it is. Why did the rich man? Then, I mean, why did Jesus then ask the rich, rich young ruler to go and sell all he had? Because in Luke six, uh, in, um, in 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 the same parable in Luke, the rich man or the same book, Luke, there is the rich young ruler who is asked to go and sell all. And here's the reason. The reason is found in verse thirteen of Luke sixteen. Look at verse sixteen. The reason he asked that rich young ruler to go and sell all he had, give to the poor. Then follow him was because, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and 
Mammon is a, means money and the things money can buy. The reason he told the rich young ruler is the rich young ruler, it, by his words, said, I want to go to heaven. By his behavior, he said, I'll live so that I can go to heaven. But the problem's not the behavior. It's the heart. And when Jesus said, okay, give up your idol, give up your love for money and love me, he went away sad. Not because he was rich, but because he loved riches more than he loved his Savior. So it's not your bank account. It's not your financial portfolio that determines your eternal eternal destiny. So maybe it's this, number three. Maybe it's because he of his secularism. Maybe it's because he was a secularist. Now, why do I say that? Well, here you have a Jew who's from the right stock and who was rich. Now, that was a shoe-in in their thinking. But he's in hell, so I know what it is. He was a secular Jew. He was an unbeliever. He was not an orthodox Jew, okay? He wasn't a practicing Jew. He wasn't a good Jew. What are some of the isms that send people to hell? Well, let's look at them. Secularism. You do not believe in anything that cannot be proven by science or confirmed by the five senses. You'll never trust God for salvation and be a secular. Materialism. Those who deny all that is not, they deny anything that's not physical and observable. You'll never believe in God who is spirit and be a materialist. Hedonism, those who live only for pleasure and always eating, drinking, because tomorrow they may die. You cannot be a believer in Jesus Christ and be a hedonist. An atheist who deny that God exists, obviously. Agnostics who believe that even if God does exist, no one could ever know him for sure. And humanists who think that man is the measure of all things. Maybe this rich Jewish man was one of those isms. But the parable doesn't leave us that option. What kind of person was the rich man? Let me give you two characteristics. Number one, he knew his Bible. He knew his Bible. Why do I say that? Look at verse 29. Abraham said to him, Your five brothers have Moses and the prophets. If his brothers had them, he had them. And what is Moses and the prophets? That was the Old Testament. And guess what? That was the Bible. He knew his Bible. He knew his Bible. And you know how we know that? We know that because it's implied that he had access to it and that he knew it to be the Word of God and it revealed God's law and it had God's warnings, God's... He knew the warnings, the... He knew it all. And like any good Jew, he had probably been brought up to go to the synagogue every Saturday since he was a little boy. More than likely, he had heard the Bible, read the Bible, memorized the Bible, handled the Bible, and I would go so far, if he was a Pharisee, he had taught the Bible. He knew his Bible. Number two, he knew his theology. He knew his theology. In verses 28 and 30, he says, Send someone from the dead. He believed in resurrection from the dead, as did the majority of Jews at that day. He believed in repentance for salvation. Look at verse 30. They will repent. He knew that unless they repented, there would be no hope. He knew repentance for sin. He knew that there was a place of eternal torment and that those who repent, who did not repent were sent there. He knew that heaven was a place of eternal comfort. He knew that sin was missing the mark of God's law. He knew there was a lawgiver and there was a judge. This is no secularist. This is no humanist. 
He believed in repent. Here's the thing. When he says repent is the key, there is a boatload of theology behind that belief. To believe in repentance, you believe there's sin. To believe there's sin, you believe there's a standard and there's a law. When you believe there's a law, there's a lawgiver, and lawgivers are judges. And when there's a judge, there's a God. So when he says that one word, he's saying, I know how this works in my head. He had good theology. Number three, he knew his religion. I believe in light of verses 14 and 15, this man represented a Pharisee. He didn't just know his Bible. He knew his theology. He knew his religion. He was a Pharisee. Maybe he was like Paul. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. If you would have measured him by the law, you would have found him to be faultless, sinless. You say, well, of course, if he's a Pharisee, he's in hell because we know the Pharisees are the bad guys of the Bible. The problem is in that day, they weren't the bad guys. You know who they were? They were the good guys. They were you and me. They were people like you and me. They were fundamentalists. They believed the Bible was the literal word of God. They were evangelicals. They would go to the farthest corners of the earth to share the truth of the Bible. They were missionary-hearted people. They were righteous. They lived separated from sin. They were good people. They were really good people. But you see, God doesn't just judge by the external, does he? He judges by the heart. And that's what it says in verse 15. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows what? Your hearts. And what men say is good, God says it stinks. See, here's the bottom line. Measure myself against horizontally other people, I will always come out on top because I will be careful to compare myself always to those who are worse than me. Compare myself to God. Compare yourself to God. And we will always fall short. Because God just doesn't look at the external. He looks at the internal. Now, notice what it says in your notes. Yes, secularists will be in hell, as will materialists, hedonists, humanists, atheists, agnostics, but also deists and theists. Theists believe in God. In fact, every religion and denomination on earth will be well represented in hell, including Baptists of every variety. Independent, fundamental, southern, open, regular, closed. They'll all be there in hordes in hell. So here it is. If it wasn't his stock, his substance, and his secularism, and even his sincerity, then it must be this. Number four, was it because of his sin? Was it because of his sin? Now we're getting close to the answer. Yes, This man is in hell because of his sins. We know from that one word, repent. He failed to repent of his sins. But let's balance that simple statement. People go to hell because of their sins. This man had committed no spectacular sins. How many sins do you have to commit to go to hell? One. James 2.10. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Have you committed one sin? Do you know somebody? Who's the best person you've ever met? The best person you've ever met. And God says, compared to my goodness, his goodness or her goodness is as though it was filthy wrath. Wow. 
How bad of sin does it take to be sent to hell? This is an interesting question. You know how bad? Just kidding. Lose your temper and in your heart say, I hate something. Lose your temper and slip out a cup. That's the kind of sin that sends people to hell. Listen to Matthew 5.22. Jesus is speaking. But I say to you, for whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, which was a cuss or an insult, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Have you ever called someone a fool? That sends people to hell. Here's the second balancing to that. If he was in hell because he was a sinner, but everyone who is in heaven is a sinner, would you agree? Everybody in heaven. So, I mean... What's, what, what, it's got to be more than our sin, because if sinners are in hell and sinners in heaven, how many people are sinners worthy of being sent to hell? What's the answer to that one? All, everyone. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no exception. I deserve to split hell wide. And so do you. We tend to think of it this way. If my friend or family member is in hell, then everyone is going to hell because she was a very good person and you would be exactly right. She's a very good person and everyone is going to hell. And I don't say that with joy. I don't say that with with smugness or condescension. I say it because God says it and that settles it. It's true. This man is in hell because of his sin, but not because he sinned like Hitler not because of any great immorality like a child molester, not because of any great murder like a serial killer. Here's what you want to chew on. It's in your notes. There will be good people in hell. Let me say that again. There will be good people in hell, even better than some of those who are in heaven. And there will be bad people in heaven, some who are even worse than those who are in hell. Did that just blow your category? It needs to, because salvation is by grace through faith. There'll be good, good people from a human standpoint in hell, but they won't be as good as God. And that's the reality. So maybe it was this, number five, was it because of his selfishness? Now we're really getting close to the truth, because at the heart of sin is selfishness, and this guy was selfish. I mean, how do we know that? Because there laid Lazarus, and what did he do? He shut his heart off. He had all that he could. He had more than he needed. And instead of, he didn't even, he'd even throw the crumbs of the table to this man. He didn't take him in. But let's, let's reverse the parable. Let's say that he was gracious. Let's say that he took Lazarus in, washed his wounds, fed him, adopted him as his own kid and said, you can just stay here and live and fare sumptuously with me for the rest of your life, would then, would he then go to heaven? Because, it says in your notes, we are judged by our works, but no one is saved by their works. We are judged by our works, but no one is saved by our works. On that day... If we do not believe in Jesus, we will stand before God and he's going to weigh out our works 
and everyone's hoping that the good's going to outweigh the bad, but the reality is the bad will always outweigh the good because who's the standard? God is the standard. We're not saved by our works, but number two, we are saved to do good works. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 are always quoted, but we live off, leave off verse 10. And you should never quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 without verse 10. Listen, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's the problem. That man walked by Lazarus and did not do good works because he did not have a good heart. His heart had not been changed. But some people do good works, but guess what? Their heart still has not been changed. You say, well, my heart's been changed. I believe in Jesus. Then James would say, show me your work. It is the heart that matters to God, and his judgment is the only one that counts. See, that's the whole point of verse 15. It's not how good other people think you are. It's what God sees when he looks at your heart. So I beg you today, what does God see in your heart? Does he see someone who says, I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve to go to hell. I know I fall short. And Lord, I need you as my Savior, and I have received you. I have turned from my sins to accept you as my Savior, and now I have a redeemed heart. Or does he see someone like those five brothers who knew their Bible, who knew their theology, who knew their religion, and had never repented and believed in Jesus? And that brings us to the sixth question, which... We will deal with next week, and the whole answer to the whole question is this. Was it because of his response to Scripture? Was it because of his response to Scripture? And you know what? The answer to that is yes, yes, yes. And you know what? The saddest of all things, that in hell, he knew that that was the answer. Because here's what he said. If someone will just go to my brothers and bring a message of salvation, they will repent. They'll respond right. And he said, look, they don't need someone to rise from the dead. What they need to do is take the clear teaching of the word of God, take it at face value, measure your life from it, fall short, confess it, repent, and say, Lord, if it... If you don't change my heart to be like you, I have no chance. What kind of people are in hell? Good people, religious people, people like your neighbors, like that great boss you have, like that best teacher that ever taught you, like that most loving parent that you may have. They're all in hell if they have not responded to what God has said about sin about salvation, and about his son. Next week, we're going to answer the question, how do I go to heaven from here? How do I know? And how do I help other people? Let's pray.